I'm here today with Carrie Connolly. Carrie's a best-selling author and has published three books and a number of articles and blog posts. You may recognize her from her 2020 book, Good White Racist, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. She has been a certified coach since 2015 with several additional certifications. With over 25 years of experience in corporate, nonprofit, and entrepreneurial arenas, Carrie's a sought-after speaker and coach. In addition to her three books, she's the host of two podcasts and regularly appears as a guest on podcasts, radio, and live events. Carrie brings her passion for justice to everything she does, whether that's DEI training and consulting, her coaching, or her writing. With both the expertise of an academic and the relatability of a New Jersey snark, (laughs) (laughs) Carrie instantly creates a rapport with her clients and creates a container for real transformation to take place. Her new book is titled, Wait, Is This Racist? A Guide to Becoming an Anti-Racist Church. To learn more, you can go to carryconnelly.com. That's K-E-R-R-Y-C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y.com. So, Carrie, thanks so much for joining us again. It's uh, wonderful to, you know, be able to speak with you, and congratulations on all your great work. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here, as always. Well, you know, I just so much enjoyed, you know, the, the first book, Good White Races, mm-hmm. was really an important book. And um, I'm, I'm glad that it's uh, gone so well, you know, in terms of uh, its yeah. impact. So uh, congratulations on that, too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so before we talk about books, though, <clears throat> maybe you mm-hmm. can tell people more about your background and the consulting work that you do, the non-book, you know, related things. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, th- I think this whole journey into anti-racism started when I, I was already certified as a coach. And this whole journey into anti-racism started with my blog, Jersey Girl Jesus, which is pretty much defunct now, but that's when I kind of started the journey, and that's how, that's what led to Good White Racist. And after Good White Racist, I was doing a whole lot of book clubs with uh, churches, and um, I have a, a, a long history in operational consulting and things like that. And so um, while I was in after after seminary, I wrote Good White Racist while I was actually in seminary. So now I've graduated. I have this Master of Divinity, but I have no desire to be a pastor whatsoever. I think I would do harm as a pastor. And I've kind of uh, discovered that I think the, the magic for me really is in, in helping church leaders um, kind of go through a process of deconstructing their whiteness and helping their congregations to do that. And so I kind of come in and help churches work and and nonprofits and corporate organizations as well, but primarily churches, help them to kind of understand where empire might be sneaking into their liturgical procedures and their operations, their hiring practices, everything from children's curriculum to the the music that they sing. Um, And it was kind of in my conversations with church groups that I realized that there was a need for um, a book that could help churches do this on their own if they couldn't hire me. So, Yeah, well, I mean, it's great work to be done, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> a lot of work and what's, to be done. <laughs> there, there is a lot of work, and what's really interesting and what I love is how needed and how enthusiastic so many predominantly white churches are um, to really be engaging in this work, even when it gets hard, and it always gets really difficult. <laughs> so That's good to hear, you know, that there's yeah. motivation to persevere through that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So kind of looking at your writing life how did yeah you started you said it got started as a blog 
But, yes, you know, yeah. What got you motivated to do that and to do the books? You know, I've always I've always gravitated toward writing. Writing was always the thing that I think I was I was best at. You know, it was that I always had a, a way with words. Um, but I never really believed that I could make a career out of writing. It was something that I just kind of had this story in my head that writing was really hard. It was filled with rejection. And then probably around 2015, I kind of gave up all of the attachment that I had to this idea of being a famous writer. And I, I will say I still have this harbor a dream of writing this beautiful novel someday, but I really suck at plots. So that's probably never going to happen. But, <laughs> but the, the, I just have always loved books. I've always loved words. And so around the time, around 2015, I think it was, I just said, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to write for my own self. I'm just going to write a blog and maybe three people and my mom will read it and that'll be fine. And that's what I did. And it started getting more and more traction. And then one day I pitched to Pathios, the the website Pathios, and, and then it got picked up on Jersey Girl Jesus got picked up there. And that's when my writing platform really expanded and grew exponentially. And that's how I got connected with WJK Books. And uh, and then the rest is kind of, that's where it all it all started. So well, good for you. Good for you. Thank and you. You know, as you said, it's not an easy, short, quick process, right? I mean, no, it takes a long time and a lot of perseverance and some luck in there, you know. I mean, yes. And, and, and I think... I think there's real truth to the idea that you have to be willing to write the scary stuff. Hmm. Um, and I think that that was the thing that for me was the pivot point when I finally said, I'm not going to care what, who I might make angry with what I'm going to say. I'm not going to worry about that. And I started writing a lot more truthfully. And once I started writing a lot more truthfully, I got a lot more death threats for sure, but I also had a lot more people coming to me going, thank you so much for what you've been writing. Mm. And that's actually what led me to go to seminary was I started getting, because I was writing about LGBTQ plus rights, I had a lot of people that were writing to me and I found myself ministering to them. And I was like, wow, I think I need to go to seminary. So I really know what I'm talking about. So. Oh, good for you. <laughs> yeah, thank you, invest, you. You invested a lot. You know, I have yes. To, uh, That's true. To to make it where you are now, so yeah, and it was in seminary where I was introduced to Black liberation theology and womanist theology, and that's also had a, a huge impact on the work that I do as well. You can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I mentioned that um, in the blogs for Compassion Christianity and How to Heal Our Divides, I've quoted you know, good white racist many times. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and I, I assume that that book has done well. Um, but yeah. Kind of tell us more about what that has been like since you published it, since we did the interview for that a while back. Yeah, a while back, yes. Um, you know, it's, I've been, I've been really humbled by, um, by the, the response to that book. And I have to say too, it was, there are times where I, I cringe a little bit only because the book came out March in, in March of 2020. And by May, if we all remember, Minneapolis yeah. was burning, right? So yeah. that created, unfortunately, a very unfortunate um, awareness of the topic, right? So the book was already there um, and, and poised after the murder of, of George Floyd. Um, 
I sometimes really, and I, I take this, I, I'm, I'm not being lighthearted when I say this at all. I'm being very serious and um, uh, I don't even know what, what the right word is, but I, I feel a deep, um, I don't know what the word is, a deep sense of responsibility, I think, because I, I feel as though if the book would not maybe have had the success it had if it hadn't been for what happened to George right, Floyd right. and uh, and um, so many of the other there was there were so many other uh, Ahmaud Arbery all around the same time that happened and there is such a deep sense of responsibility that I feel um, to do this work well and to do it with integrity um, and uh, so yeah so so it's been both a an honor and a and a privilege to do this work and a very a responsibility I take very seriously because I feel as a white person doing this work I need I have a lane that I need to stay in. Um, and I try to do that really well. And then um, it's it's an honor. It's an honor to to do this. Well, you know, one word that I encourage authors to use around this area is stewardship. Yes, you know, you've been a, a great good word. steward of the opportunity that you were given, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm so glad to hear your perspective on that because I think I love that word. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's oftentimes it's used like for financial giving at a church or things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, I've heard other people use it in this kind of a context. Um, actually, some of the marketing mm-hmm. folks that I pay attention to who are also spiritually, you know. Mm-hmm strong too will use yes. this word about being a good steward of your audience of your opportunity yes. of your privilege of you know yes. we, there's a lot of different d- dimensions that you can look at um oh i love that apply that especially term. especially the idea of being a good steward of our privilege that brian that is totally going to show up in a blog post oh <laughs> uh, good <laughs> thank you well send because, me a link to it so i can you know I, repost I, it i definitely will because i that is a beautiful way to think about it and um and i think that's gonna i'm working on a curriculum um called how to stop being white and start being a better human <laughs> so um and that will be for individuals and i think that's definitely going to show up in that curriculum too so i will give you credit <laughs> well it, was, that, you know, it wasn't my I, I just listen to other people and i take their ideas i, I never think of anything originally myself <laughs> <laughs> well that's true of all of us though you know we just mix them up and present them differently but i think that's a beautiful way of thinking about it and especially about white body privilege as how can we steward that in ways that you know, redistribute resources and uh, provide pr- uh, provisional safety for embodiment. I, I, I've been doing a lot of thinking about embodiment lately. And mm. um, yeah, I just, I think that that's, um, that's such a beautiful, a beautiful way to think about it. So thank you for that. Well, for me, you know, I put out four different email newsletters, you know, mm-hmm. every, every two weeks, they're staggered, you know, how to heal our divides, compassion, Christianity, right of your life and publishing in color. And so mm-hmm. each time I do that, I try to think of, you know, how am I nourishing this audience? Yeah. You know, how am I being a steward of the, you know, fact that there's some folks that are subscribed to this stuff? Yeah. You know, and try to serve that audience as best I can. So that was one of the mindsets that, you know, I've tried to adopt and try to live. Yeah. It's similar to the way I approach whiteness and, and discussing whiteness with people, with white people, because I really do believe that as 
that as I think about dominant systems of dominance and identity of identities of dominance that move within those systems, I really do believe that dominance harms the dominant identities as well. And so I I really think that um, helping white people to deconstruct our whiteness is an issue of of urgent pastoral care. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I, I am passionate about my work with churches is that I do really believe that we need to deconstruct this this constructed dominance um, in our psyches as a matter of our own restorative healing, yeah, not absolutely. not even you know the the social implications and the and the ways that our racism impacts Bill Pop. We need to start doing it for our own healing first and foremost, and then the rest will will heal the world. So, so um, let's get to the new book. Um, I yeah. mentioned the title is. <clears throat> wait, is this racist? A guide to becoming an anti-racist church. And you touched on this a little bit, but what motivated you to write that book and how did the book come about? Yeah. So after Good White Racist um, came out, I did hundreds of, I feel like hundreds, maybe it wasn't quite hundreds, but it felt like it, of book clubs where with churches. And because of it, it was the pandemic, I did a couple of week um, all on Zoom. And they were such great, rich conversations. And I started thinking about, okay, well, what's the next step? Like what, what's the next step after a church reads a book? What's what's next for that church in order to become truly anti-racist? And I do believe that the church needs to be thinking about this um, because of how deeply embedded Christianity as an institution is with systemic racism, right? And so I started kind of developing a, what I was calling at the time a curriculum. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe um, how can I help church leaders to really, uh, really become, lead their churches, their organizations to becoming anti-racist. And that's when I I started working on that. And I was like, well, hold on a second. Maybe this could be a a follow-up book for these churches who are interested in it. So I got in touch with uh, WJK Books and they were really excited about it. So that's what we did. And of course, it's super important, I think, for white people to um, be uh, resisting any kind of uh, platform hoarding or celebrity culture um, and also to be submitting to voices of color. Um, and so that's why I invited Josh Riddick and Brianna Clover, who are two amazing colleagues and professionals, um, to write this book with me. So, and they are uh, two people of color who are very well-versed in church consulting as well. Mm, okay. I wasn't familiar with either one of those names. <laughs> yeah, they're brand new to writer. This is their first book. For both okay, of them, so, excellent. Yeah. Well, talk a little bit then about the collaborative process of three people trying to write a book together. <laughs> oh yeah. So that was fun. <laughs> so yeah, th- I mean, I think we got into a really great system. Um, Google docs is awesome for collaborative yes. work. <laughs> um, yeah. I love it. And uh, we basically, basically what we did was I would write, uh, we worked on the outline. I, I had already given them the outline. I, I developed the outline. I was like, this is what I want to work on. So that they c- could kind of get an idea of what they wanted to talk about. And then I would write the chapter, give the chapter to them for their review and receive first and foremost, so I could receive their feedback to make sure I wasn't saying anything white and stupid, you know, so like, let's make sure I'm not doing harm here, right? So that was the the first thing that they helped me, helped me with. And then they wrote their responses as well from, from their vast um, personal experience their and their professional experience and, and their knowledge on the topic. And what I love about their input too, is that so often churches who care about this very often 
will have one or two um, BIPOC, and I'm using that term BIPOC. I was using BIPOC. I've learned since to add the L for Latinx, but I just want to acknowledge too that that kind of does not acknowledge the Asian population, which has a primary form of oppression, which is erasure. So there's, it's problematic, but um, language is problematic as we're learning this. But so they, they were able to um, bring in a perspective because so many churches will have one or two um, people of color on their staff. And those, those people end up bearing a huge burden um, that I, I don't think the, the other white people in church st staffs are aware of. Of. And so they were able to, Josh and Bree were able to offer some care and sustenance uh, for Bill Pock people who might be reading this book on staff and also help white staff members understand better how to care for their, the, the, the people of color in both on their staff and in their congregation. Hmm. So it was a great perspective that they brought. Excellent. Excellent. That is very valuable. Yeah. Um, and so it might be obvious to you and I, but um, I'm not sure that it is to everyone that you don't have to be a diverse church in order to work on anti-racism. Right. Right. But you should. So important. You shouldn't. Have, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so talk a little actually, bit about that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that's one of my favorite topics because I actually, um, I think one of the, the first go-to that most white people will will go to um, when, when they say, okay, anti-racism, what are we going to do? They're like, we have to be more diverse. And that's not necessarily a good thing. I actually am not a huge fan necessarily of quote, you know, um, diversity. <laughs> pro yeah. Recruitment. Because one of the things that I think white people skip over is doing the work in, in ourselves to ensure that we are creating a safe place for the Bill Pock who are coming into our churches. And so if a church, if a white church hasn't begun to do that work, to really do the, the deep work of introspection and self-reflection and healing our own internalized whiteness, then we're not going to be a safe place. And also, I, I think it's entirely okay um, to, to recognize that that Bill Pock need Bill Pock only spaces. And that's one of the things that I will work with a white church to help them understand that one of the ways that they can care for their communities of color is to create um, Bill Pock only spaces, affinity groups, um, things like that. So that, because I, I'm not, everything that I have learned from my, my beloveds who are um, black and brown is that, whiteness is exhausting and to be constantly in the space of whiteness is is really exhausting and the closest i can come to understanding that is to understand how refreshed i always am when i'm in the presence of of women only for so long right where i can let it all hang out i don't need to put on any um any defense mechanisms against any kind of potential um, microaggressions I might experience as a woman, I can understand what it's like to need a space that's only women only. And so I think that one of the most hospitable things that white, white churches can do is to understand that Bill Pock sometimes need Bill Pock only spaces, and that's okay. And that doesn't mean that you can't be, if even if you are only a, a predominantly white church that you can't be incredibly and powerfully anti-racist. 
um, because a lot of racism occurs in white only spaces, you know, when, oh, I feel comfortable now I can tell the racist joke because there's not a black person here, right? Well, as a white person who's in a white only space where race, racialized contexts are occurring, how are you going to show up and to be anti-racist even in the white only space, right? That's just as important, if not more important. Well, it's just as important. I'm not going to say more important, but it's just as important as using your privilege, being a good steward of your privilege in mixed spaces as well. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, quite frankly, in my view, that's more where the problem needs to be solved. A hundred percent. Yes. In white predominant organizations, yes. not just churches. I mean, it's nope. not limited there, right? I mean, it's right. much more broadly than that. But a hundred percent. The fundamental problem primarily, yeah. not, not exclusively, mm-hmm. but primarily uh, resides. In any event, <laughs> let's talk about how the book is intended to be used by churches and lay people. Mm. Yeah, that's that's another important. This is definitely not the kind of book where you just kind of sit on the couch on a Saturday and read through it. It's, <laughs> it's interactive. It's got questions at the end. It's meant to be journaled and talked through. So ideally, what I would love, um, the way I would love for churches to be using this is to be using it in a group setting. Um, where everybody's reading the book and doing the workbooks and the the questions at the end of each um, section and then actually applying it. So it's organized by different operational um, parts of of your organization. So there's leadership, preaching, uh, liturgy, music, children and youth, um, just to name a few. And so making sure that there's having um, as, as a leadership team, coming together and really going through and create doing an audit of all of your operational practices. So the book is set up so that the first part of the chapter helps you understand why it's important. So why is it important to ensure that empire is not sneaking into your music and your, and your liturgy? What makes that so important? And then once you understand why it's important, then you can move, move into the action steps of, okay, let's go through everything that we're doing and really start paying attention to this and make changes. And what I really try to do as well is um, is help people understand that sometimes their most beloved traditions may need to go, and that's okay, right? And that they're going to get pushed back. So I try to we the my co-authors and I try to really provide um, the resilience that leaders will need in order to lead and move their their congregations into a truly anti-racist space. Very cool. Very cool. So there's not a separate leader guide or discussion guide or anything. This is all embedded in the book, right? There, everything is embedded in the book, but there are additional resources on the WJK um, website. Oh, so okay. you can, there are some, you can, so for example, there are questions in the books, but in the book, you can download PDFs of those questions uh, off of their website. Good, good. And you can also find on my website, um, and I'll give you the link you can put in show notes and stuff, but there's also a conversation um, that Bree, Josh, and I had together because we wanted to kind of model what does an interracial website uh, conversation look like. <laughs> That's no problem. Um, good, good. I'm, I'm really glad to know about that. Um, so one of the things that kind of strikes me about what what we're talking about here is that you know, the churches are going through a deconstruction process. I mean, for lack of a better term, I know that's got some baggage associated with it, but, but kind of that, what they're, what they're doing in this state, in this um, 
around race. My question is, do you think this will help churches do de deconstruction perhaps around some other areas that they may mm. need to struggle with too? Mm. Yes. So we're super intersectional in the church, in the, in the book. Um, we, I, in fact, I know that somewhere in that book is a line. That's Rosie, my dog, if you can see her. Dogs sorry. and children are always welcome to any okay, uh, Writing for Your Life event. So don't worry about Excellent. that at all. Awesome, because <laughs> she's making her presence known. Um, but I, I know that somewhere in the book, I can't remember where, but somewhere in the book there, I do talk about the fact that you cannot be um, anti-racist and also not affirming of the LGBTQ community because it all goes together. You can't, if a black gay woman walks into your church, you can't say we affirm your blackness, but not your gayness and not your femaleness. So that's not going to be allowed to lead or do anything like that or teach a man. No. And I've had experiences. I, I had one church, one teaching pastor of a large church near my house shortly after Good White Races came out. He asked me to come to coffee. We won't even, I won't even get into the ways in which um, so many white men are, are more than willing to ask me to do labor for free, to teach them personally, tutoring them. Um, I even bought my own coffee at that one, by the way. Um, but <laughs> crazy. We won't even get in there. Um, but he sat down with me and asked me all of these questions. And I know for a fact that his church is non-affirming and that they do not let women teach or preach. And I said to him, you can't do one without the rest. And a year later, that church came out with a statement. And I think you could probably find this on my blog where I made, actually, I may even, I may, but the, their statement might be in the, in the book notes. They came out with, in, with a statement where uh, on racial equity, where they determined that they were no longer going to use the word racism. Wow. So wow. that's such a white thing to do. And <laughs> it's also indicative of how if an organization cannot affirm a, the full humanity of a person, they are not going to be able to truly engage in any kind of anti-racist work. So I, I, there's definitely, and that is clear throughout our entire book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We pull no punches on that. Good, good. I mean, mm -hmm. amen. But maybe there's an opportunity for a follow-on book, you know, uh -huh. talking about <laughs> extending the practices, you know, more, yeah. uh, what do I say, intentionally to yeah. some other area? I don't know. It's, it's just an yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely. it's important. I think, you know, Absolutely. if churches can go through this, you know, with race as the number one thing that they're trying to, I'll use the word again, deconstruct, that's such a wonderful thing, such an mm -hmm. amazing thing. But if they're successful in doing that, then I think it adds vitality and opportunity more broadly within a hundred percent, a hundred percent. It's so important. And you know, what, what this journey has led me to in my next book, and I am hoping to have an agent for this next one, hint, hint, anybody who might be listening, but <laughs> um, my, my next book, I want to write about dominance systems of dominance and identities of dominance and how they are ultimately fragile. Right. And, and, and that's why, we tend to cling so tightly to these constructs of, of dominance is because we're so terrified, right? And we don't need to be. And so that's really, yeah, that it's, I think that's kind of speaking to what you're talking about. 
Mm-hmm. And Christian dominance is one of those. <laughs> the, the dominance of Christianity needs to be deconstructed surprise, as well. Surprise, surprise. <clears throat> uh-huh. Shocker. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I want to explore a, a little bit more about the whole idea of, you know, a, a white person doing anti-racism work. Um, yeah. Can you just talk about, like, the challenges you've seen associated with that and how you've overcome that? Yes. Every day I question, is it, do I still belong here? Do I still belong in this work? Um, because there are white people who are doing this work without a whole lot of integrity, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think being paid as a white person to do, to do work, um, anti-racism work, is, is deeply problematic, and I, I recognize that. Um, I have a, a statement both in this book and on the blog, on, on, my, on my website, about my stance on this. Um, but every day I'm reviewing my position, right? Because um, as, as uh, just like white people are not a monolith, you know, black and brown people are not monolithic either in their opinions. So I receive a lot of support and um, a lot of, of black and brown people who are like, thank you, we, we need white people doing this work. And then I have people who say, what can a white person really do um, to become anti-racist. Andre Henry says, you know, doesn't that uh, equivalent, uh, isn't that equivalent to self-annihilation? And he's not wrong, right? He's not wrong. We do actually need to um, really deconstruct ourselves, our whole identities, and it's a painful process. And that is why I have figured out what I've kind of, kind of finally come to and figured out is that my place in this work is to be a companion to other white people as they do that difficult journey through their racial deconstruction. Because first of all, that should not be the, the labor of Bill Pock people. It should not, um, nor, nor do I think that they are um, fully equipped to understand what it's like to be a white person who is deconstructing this, this identity of dominance. Right. And so and and what that feels like and and the 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 pain of the defensiveness that we feel and um and how that transmutes into actual real grief once we begin to understand and lay down our defensiveness and i think the sense of overwhelm that a lot of people who are truly engaging this work will start to feel um and inevitably what i've come to realize as i'm working with so many white churches is that there comes a point in time where uh, whiteness will start to rear its ugly head. So there, you, there's usually a, a task force or a team that's at a church that's decided, okay, we're going to do this work. And everybody's gung-ho. They're like, yes, we need to do this work. And they're so excited to put up on their website that, yes, we're doing this work, right? Yay, we're, we're going to be anti-racist. But then the, and I tell my, the teams that I work with, this is not the work, all of this preparatory work where we're giving the reports and we're telling them we're making their suggestions. That's not the work. The work is going to come when you're actually asking somebody to relinquish some of their privilege, their dominance, their power. That's where whiteness is going to show up. And that's always the point because whiteness is so sneaky. We, we do it in, with demands for precise language in a report. And we do it with stalling efforts. We're going, we're going to put off, you know, your, we're not going to review, review your report for another three months, or we're not going to approve this until you fix this one word. Or we have all of these ways that we stall and, 
and stop the work from happening. And that's where white people who are really engaged in this work get frustrated and say, I quit. I give up. This is too hard. And that's when I say, oh, no, 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 this is the work. (laughs) This is the actual work that we're here to do, right? And so that's where I kind of come in and and act as a real companion and a guide um, to other white people and and tell them we're in this for the long haul. This is going to be a lifelong endeavor. Um, And again, that should not be the labor or the responsibility of of our black and brown siblings. They have thriving to do. <laughs> they have they have stuff that they, they have their own brilliance to go nurture and bring to the world, right? So that's how I determine my role. When it comes to being paid, I think it's really important to number that number one, I always support economic reparations on a national level. And number two, any work that I do, including work from the book, I tie 10% to organizations that support black and brown thriving so that's how i approach that topic wonderful wonderful yeah. well um carrie it's it's fantastic work i mean thank goodness you're doing this stuff you know you're kind of like pushing the envelope where the envelope needs to be pushed is it's kind of my view i am an enneagram eight so <laughs> <laughs> that explains it <laughs> so you touched on this a little bit but i want to hear more about the future work that you've got in mind yeah i So I am, as I said, I'm working on a curriculum. Um, It's going to be the same curriculum for individuals and for organizations, but it will be called two different things. Um, For organizations, it'll be called Deconstructing Whiteness. For individuals, it will be called How to Stop Being White and Start Being a Better Human, mostly because I don't think organizations will will feel comfortable trying to to distribute to their people and uh, something called how to stop being white. You know, I think they'll, they'll, that'll freak them out a little bit, but ultimately it's, it will take people through an entire, um, an entire understanding of how whiteness will show up and how it's been programmed into us. And then how it shows up in our inner landscape, interrelationally in our interpersonal uh, relationships with other individuals, and then on a societal level. And then it will talk about how we, what we can do to deconstruct that. So I'm working on that. What I'm also really excited about is um, Brianna Clover, who is my colleague on the book. She has uh, developed an amazing assessment called the Ready Assessment, which is uh, an assessment that organizations can use to help determine their their organizational readiness for anti-racism and DEI work. And we are creating one specifically for churches based on the book. And that's going to be available in the next month or two. And that is such an invaluable tool. It's going to going to be so great and um and then hopefully my next i'm working on an outline for my next book called dominant and working title dominant and that's all about identifying and deconstructing all of the identities of dominance within the north american culture excellent excellent good for yeah. you that's so exciting to hear Thank carrie you. i'm so glad for you and so glad you're doing this work and Thank when that tool comes out did you just mention you know please send me a link to it absolutely I'll make sure totally. i get the word out about that too Great. I will definitely do that. So again, the title of uh, Carrie's new book is Wait, Is This Racist? A Guide to Becoming an Anti-Racist Church. And you can learn more about it at CarrieConnolly.com. Carrie, I can't thank you enough for all the work that you're doing. I'm so glad to be able to, you know, just find out about it and share about it. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Uh, You know, I so appreciate all of the work you do to support writers and uh, to support the work that we do. And um, I can't wait to to be at your next conference. So thank you. <laughs> good, good. Well, can't, I can't wait either. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Carrie, thanks again. Thank you. Take care.